0: Hello and welcome to Look-See, the podcast for the art curious. I'm Paige Goodpasture. Amy Joyot is an abundantly creative and endlessly curious artist who has her artist mind in lots of different places. She's a painter, a photographer, and a performance artist. She's a printmaker and a teacher. Drawing plays a central role in her artistic practice. The renovated antebellum cotton warehouse in Petersburg, Virginia, that she and her husband, Allen call home, contains artistic multitudes, including a painting studio, a darkroom, a print and letterpress shop, and Alan's woodworking studio. In her work, Amy uses color, language, iconography, and found materials to respond in a visceral way to current events and to examine their connections to the histories and mythologies that make up our cultural identities. At her home and studio, Amy and I talked about her artist life, and we dug into two bodies of work that directly examine race and racism in Amy's adopted home, the American South.
1: My name is Amy Chwayo, and I live in Petersburg, Virginia, in a renovated cotton warehouse that was built just prior to the Civil War. We bought this building with the intention of creating studio spaces and living. There's commercial space downstairs, which we are toying with actually opening a gallery. That's a new idea for us. It's a nice community. It's a small town. It's close to Richmond, which is kind of a thriving art space, so it's really ticking off
0: all of our desires on the box. Amy, today we're going to talk about a couple of your bodies of work. You are a prolific and creative and curious artist who has your artist mind in lots of places. So can you tell me just a little bit about kind of where you're coming from as an artist, big picture? I
1: came to art You know, kind of late. Uh, As a senior in high school, I took my first art class last semester of school, and it just changed my life. I suddenly felt like I discovered this language that I didn't know I was looking for, though I did know that I didn't have a language. It really struck me the expressive capacity of art and the beauty, and that I could generate that was awe-inspiring. And so I went to college and became an artist. and In some ways, because I didn't have this background, I didn't have any preconceived notions, and I went to a small school in Oregon that didn't have a very big art program, so I kind of dabbled in everything, and there wasn't any sense of art stardom or anything like that. I was concerned about getting a, a job, and I didn't really know what to do with art. I graduated, and I didn't feel like I had anything to say, and I thought art was about having something to say, so I spent 10 years as a ski instructor and traveling around and having worked as a firefighter and I had a lot of different kinds of jobs and lived in different places. And I kept dabbling away at art. And I took a photo class at the end of my undergraduate degree. And I really loved photography. I found it to be very flexible and graphic. And There are jobs in photography, so the the ten years went by, and and I decided to apply to get an MFA in photography, in large part because it had commercial application. Went to the University of Oregon, a much larger school, more focused art department. I was more focused. And I had a great education with a lot of support. I had a painting studio and a photo, a darkroom space of my own. So the school was very generous, the faculty was great. Uh, I really thought everyone was going to be my age. I was in my mid-30s, and I was totally wrong. Everybody was 21. (laughs) (laughs) The graduate students all brought in a great deal of experience, which I did not have. I'd had that one photo class. So again, I kind of didn't know the rules and was able to create a lot of interesting work and bring in a lot of ideas. I think photographers can be pretty strict and they're pretty well-trained, kind of like printmakers or bookmakers. There's a lot of technique that matters, but it doesn't have to matter per se, depending on what you want. So I was supported in that creativity. Then I was ready, I was ready to be an artist and I got a job at um, Ball State University in Indiana as a contract faculty had a three-year renewable contract. And because of the hierarchy in higher ed, you know, I was kind of the last pick on the schedule. And, And the range of things they had me teaching, drawing and design and women's art and photo history and lighting and commercial photography and bookmaking. And, you know, I wanted the experience. I wanted the money. I taught year round. It was grueling, but it was Educational and productive for me, so I am curious. And um, I taught at Appomattox Regional Governor School for five years, and for four of those years, I taught art history. And I didn't go sign up for that, you know. But the person who taught art history left, and they're like, "Do you want to teach this?" And sometimes I'm t- foolish, you know. Sure, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I just have to learn the entire history of Western art. Which I wanted to know, you know, I'm a slacker by nature, so giving myself deadlines and assignment, grants are great for that, exhibitions are great, they kind of really call you on your bluff. So I like to be called on my bluff, I'm a big bluffer. I really enjoy making, and I enjoy using my hands, and in many ways I'm, I'm looking for an excuse for, you know, printmaking or my letterpress shop. I'm just looking, looking for a project, looking for a reason to work, so I can keep working because that's where the learning is for me and that's where the kind of the awareness
0: comes from. One of the things that I've really noticed as a consistent thread that runs throughout many of your bodies of work is you use found objects in your printing work. You use found papers to print on. You use a whole collection of of found Stamps that you found at a feed store's going out of business sale. You even use found canvas to paint on, (laughs) which I think is just incredible. It's. Correct me if I'm wrong, but surplus canvas, military canvas. So if you get up close to your paintings, you can see the seams and and stitches where those pieces of canvas were once used for something else. And the body of work that we're going to talk about today, that's also true. And so I wonder if that is one of the ways that you find a reason for working for yourself. You go to a going out of business sale and you find this pile of newsprint in perfect condition and say, oh, well, I'm going to buy this and this is going to make me print because I have this amazing paper to use.
1: True. I think there are kind of two reasons. One is, is I'm cheap because I have always been broke, and, and part of that is you inherit the, the wealth around you, and the other part of that is I never want to work that hard, you know? And I need time, so this is time is money, and if you don't spend your time working, you don't have any money. So artists need time. And uh, the other one is uh, the other reason. I'm interested in this conversation, this cultural conversation, a personal conversation, conversation with you, and these materials are part of a conversation. It's, it's much harder to stare at a blank piece of paper and, and start up the conversation and guide the conversation and be in charge of it. So it's that kind of back and forth that interests me, and it's the challenge the material brings me. It, it is informed in its own right, and so it, it gives me a reason
0: to, to start, I think. Your series City Lots is connected to some materials that are, I think, especially loaded and thought-provoking and disturbing. And so can you talk about that a little bit and, and how those did or didn't trigger your work on this I came across these ledgers
1: of uh, property taxes in Petersburg, Virginia, so that's already interesting, that's where I live, and they were separated by whites and coloreds, which is shocking to me when I speak with my African-American friends, they're not shocked by that, which is also interesting to me and i'm not from the south so just the the way language is used and the way people treat each other robert frank did this really important book called the americans and he was a swiss photographer and he was really criticized or the work was criticized because how can you know america you're not they're very gritty photographs and they didn't portray a beautiful country and they questioned patriotism or, or the, the flag wasn't necessarily displayed in a heroic way. And the people who defended him, and I'm not sure if he spoke for himself, uh, said that in some ways an outsider sees the world more clearly because they're not bringing in their own, you know, hab- habitual way of seeing. So it's been fascinating for me to come to the South and just see the overt racism and discrimination and oppression and I've done a lot of research because I'm I not not only do I like to make things in process with with my hands and my eyes I'm so excited about the internet and <laughs> and and fascinated and dismayed at the record the written record the proof that we have of oppression and racism and and it's it's like every 10 years we we come up with a new way to wallop black people or people of color, very intentionally, you know, the Civil War is just the scratch of the surface. So trying to explore that and witnessing that, you know, I drive to work every day or I've done volunteer work in this community and gotten to know that there are at least two Petersburgs, you know, there's the white downtown and then there's the black around town and different cultures and different lives. And this was once a thriving African-American community. And we've had a lot of things happen, including white flight. Trying to understand this, doing the research around it, getting the language around what Finders, keepers is is a term that keeps coming back to me, this idea of ownership, that you could actually own another human being and the idea of property. So these are property ledgers. That's a nice way to distill it. So the idea of of another human being is property and these these property ledgers, which depict the accumulation of wealth through property is uh, much more significant for the whites than the coloreds. And that's not accidental. So it's paper, I could draw on it, it's got this history, it's got this story behind it, and it becomes a jumping off point for me to really see what my own place is within this racism. You know, what are my inherent biases and my learned behavior and where am I in this
0: complicated web of relationships with other humans? So one of the striking things to me about your work in general but specifically about this series is that you work in generally you work in very bright colors that you know some people would describe as happy colors or garden colors or flower colors or so there's this juxtaposition between the the very serious and dark topic of these separate property ledgers and everything that they stand for as you were just saying and then these bright colors and big gestures that are your work on top of those and then in addition to that you use iconography and language that is not so bright and happy that takes a few minutes to register because the first thing that I see when I see your work and in this work or in your paintings or other bodies of work, your prints, is the color. And then you start to register what the images are and what the words are saying, and it takes you deeper. And so, can you talk a little bit about what that means? for you as an artist and why you make those choices?
1: Well, that's just very exciting to hear because it means you spend enough time with the work to to get into that next layer. Like a lot of artists, I can get depressed and I probably spent 10 years uh, with a palette that was restricted to black, brown, and red. And I made a lot of sad work and it looked sad and it was about sadness, you know, and that's okay. That happened, and some of it was beautiful, and the surfaces were beautiful. And my life situation changed, and I fell in love, and I got happy. So there are a lot of reasons that we make art. I think if I'm going to stay vital in my work, I need to continue to evolve as an artist, as a human. Formally, I want to explore color as an an element, and even photography. I work primarily in black and brown, variations of brown. But color is a very important element artistically, so color, composition, and line. So I want to work with that visually. And there's a lot of impact in color. There's a lot of symbolism in color. And in the meantime, things like Target came along, and they changed the way the world looked. And it's, it is pretty. And there is a pretty, shiny, happy look to consumerism. And it is designed to draw you in. So, if I can take those elements, I'm still interested in beauty, and beauty's a complicated idea. So, how do I use the formal elements of art, you know, that's my grammar and my vocabulary, to draw the viewer in, and then maybe slap you upside the head, you know? Because it's easy to just get kind of numbed into pretty, too. And I don't want to do that. So I want, to, I want to find that space between beauty and truth. And I talked to my friend, LaSharice Aird, the, the delegate who serves our region. And she's African-American. And we have these wonderful, honest conversations about what is my role in this space of African-American history or racism. The story of African-Americans is not only about slavery. It's a story of people. And so I'm just trying to grapple with, with that. And, and right now in my work I'm interested in color and I like the idea of color and colors. And what is color? What is the role of color? Uh, is color seasonal? Is color um, trendy? You know, the, both those things are true. Is color symbolic? Yes, it depends on where you live in the world. Different countries wear different colors to funerals. So colors are very loaded. And this work is loaded, and it's about color. And so I'm also just having funny little games I play with
0: myself. (laughs) And it's also a great way, and this is embedded in all of the things you just said, color is manipulative. Yeah. It manipulates people's emotions, which Target uses to great Mm -hmm. effect, and artists do as well. You are also a lover of language and most of your work includes written words that are, for the most part, legible. I find it fascinating that your work and this body of work, you include very modern forms of language like hashtags, and also, not by the world's definition, but maybe by the South's definition, ancient phrases that are taken from children's games and um, even, you know, finders keepers. I don't know how old that is, but Mm -hmm. probably truly ancient. And so can you talk a little bit about the way that language resonates with you and why it has to be, it seems, legible and visible in your work?
1: Uh, I do love words. I love reading. I love sound lyrics Conversation, so you hear words all around you. I keep sketchbooks in a very random way, so they're filled with language, and I might write a bunch of things on napkins. I collect the napkins, I transfer them all into the sketchbooks in, in different places. I'll literally write something, turn a couple of pages, write something, pick up another sketchbook, put it in there. So I'm, I'm looking for a nonlinear narrative. I think life is a nonlinear narrative. Language jump starts my work, it's a way for me to start if i have a canvas or a piece of paper i will often just go to the sketchbook find the the language or the image or the doodle that's kind of i'm feeling it you know and i'll put that on the page and it it gets gets me going but in this particular group of work in city lots and the box project there's something about the way language is used both as a source of oppression there and the me too you know me too me too There's a power in language, and it can be used against people in the most subtlest, scary form. And I sense that in the South, you know. And I'm sorry to say this to Southerners. I I don't mean it in a way. I don't mean everybody. Not all Southerners, hashtag. You're either getting a big smile and a handshake or getting stabbed in the back, you know. And there's a violence in, in, in both of those. One is clearly untrue, and the other is violent. So there's that. And then we live in downtown Petersburg, and every Sunday there is this black man preaching across the street, and he is just screaming about salvation. And I love it. I love listening to that. There's a banter, this patois, this, I grew up in Hawaii where pidgin English is spoken. And this sounds similar to me. It's It's a different version of the queen's English. And I get it that the queen isn't the queen anymore, but I was raised on the queen's English. So you know, what is the idea of difference and how do we navigate that and how do we capture it? And so hip hop. So when this guy is thumping away in his Bible about salvation, these cars are going by with all kinds of language coming out of them. As a woman, I would prefer not to hear, but also the poetry of hip hop and the, and the amazing lyricism and staccato rhythm of rap So there's all this stuff going on, and there are a lot of words involved, and uh, they mean different things, like games. We learn a lot on the schoolyard, right? We learn a lot about power and dynamics and normalcy. So this idea of of children's games, and so I'm getting my phrasing from a lot of different places.
0: It's a mashup. And you mentioned the Box Project, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. One of the things that really stands out to me with that project is that you're using language in many cases that speaks really directly to this issue of police brutality and the devaluing of the black body. And that project, I think, probably speaks to that topic in other ways as well. So can you tell, tell us a little bit about that project? What are some of the questions that you were asking that led to this project?
1: Well, again, I'm I'm prompted by materials that I have. So we had a bunch of these boxes that were collapsed and flat. And I knew in, in just my research of, of living in the South about Henry Box Brown, who was a Virginia slave, who shipped himself in a crate to, I want to say, Baltimore to, to be free, which that whole idea is amazing, because a box is a cage. And, and I, ha- I had a former student named Wilmer Wilson. I worked with him at Appomattox. And he was doing a project around my paper bag colored heart and the idea of the paper bag test and the pencil test and ways that African Americans looked at color. And, you know, there is a a range of lightness and darkness that is associated with value within that culture. It's really exciting to be influenced by your students, one of the reasons to be in teaching. And then there was a third element. So I'm drawing on these boxes, and I go to the 1708 uh, Monster Drawing Rally, every year if i can and one year i was drawing on these boxes and i tend to just do everything and then give it away at the end so the last step for the boxes was to pop them up into boxes and i had drawn eight boxes and i wasn't thinking that much about it i was drawing on all sides of them but the act of popping up the box just drew a lot of attention And I thought that was interesting, that suddenly people were interested in that act of popping up the box, and then the the drawing went from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, which did change the dynamic. And then when you had eight of them, that's a lot of surface that just appeared. And I love 1708 Monster Drawing, Rally for that reason, because it gives me this chance to explore something in, in kind of a risky environment. So I had accumulated 50 of these boxes And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this big risk and I'm going to do a performance piece because we have a gallery right across the street and it's a beautiful space, and um, I thought I would try to do that. So I read the boxes and talked about the boxes as I popped them up, and I kind of built this wall between myself and the audience and, and looking at these ideas of what of this language do I own? What have I said? What do I feel? What do I race is complicated poverty is complicated capitalism is complicated you know i don't i don't have a good clean answer for any of it i don't know how to transcend into nirvana and i don't know how to make a perfect world and i'm filled with guilt and and just struggle with what's how do i be and what do i do and what's what's my obligation? What's my gift? And when you get to ideas of hurting other humans, you know, I want to save the whales too, but uh, you know, what do you do? So the Box Project is one of the most literal translation of my sketchbooks that you'll see, where, because often I obliterate the language. There's a great opportunity to say what you feel and then erase it. That's wonderfully therapeutic,
0: but I left a lot of it on, on these. I'm glad that you noticed As we're sitting here in one of your many amazing spaces in this warehouse, and the box project is kind of popped up and organized here in this space. And as I'm looking at it, I'm seeing a lot of the groups of words and phrases that I see in your other work that is more obscured. And you also use a lot of iconography. So one of the things on the box project I noticed is that there is more reference to guns and to the kind of Black Lives Matter phraseology like I can't breathe and things like that than I've seems to have been especially on your mind when you were doing that project. But then there are also, there's the flag, there are collapsed buildings, there are things that maybe look like airplanes or missiles. In this project, I also see a lot more birds than in some of your other work. But so you also use this iconography that you turn to over and over again in your work. Chess pieces is another common symbol, maybe, mm-hmm. or stand in for an idea. So can you talk a little bit about that, especially in in your drawing and painting work? I'm trying to find a visual language.
1: I, I think that the written language can be a crutch, and I'm not a writer. So I, I want to kind of watch it in a way. And And I, again, I'm trying to grow as an artist, and it's easy to do what's popular, do what's pretty, do what's easy. And I don't want to do that. I want to keep working on it and keep working it out. So trying to find a visual language and create something that makes sense. And that's relative. Again, I'm not doing a linear narrative. So I'm telling a story. Those are stand-ins, those symbols. Chess is a game of strategy and power and smarts and and looking ahead. And there's a a pawn in chess (laughs) and there's a pawn in all of us. So the pawn is particularly interesting, but the game of chess is interesting. There are a lot of birds in this work. I think of the canary in the coal mine, you know. I do have a little bit of a doomsday mentality. I am in part very naive and excited, and I, I you know, I get crazy happy, and I learn something new, and I'm like a little kid. And then I'm Eeyore the donkey, and, uh, <laughs> and I'm a trained academic, and I can over-intellectualize or over-philosophize or be too wordy. But, you know, I am grabbing at all those things. The Confederate flag is fascinating to me. I like to take the stars and the bars out of it. People don't even know what these symbols mean. I mean, if you ask a bunch of people what do the stripes represent, very few people are going to be able to tell you. So we're also blindly following and believing in these symbols, you know, important symbols like the flag. I'm so confounded about the idea of patriotism. Uh, What does that mean? What are you really following, you know? And they end up being logos like Chanel. So is that the same thing, you know? So I'm just looking for a visual language and and looking for a a stand-in or a a story, petroglyphs, hieroglyphics. How can I mash it up? Again, how can I mash up something as contemporary as a hashtag and the big universal meaning of something like Me Too or I Can't Breathe with a symbol of the pawn and mix those things up to create a more nuanced or more complicated
0: or more uh, disguised Story And a timeless one as well, because these things come up again and again. Unfortunately. Yes. I
1: think really there are three elements to visual art, if I can distill it so distinctly. And I would say work can be illustrative, it can be decorative, or it can be expressive. And if I can find those three things, I feel like I've baked my souffle.
0: Well, and on that, I will say thank you so much for inviting me to your really incredible living and working space and talking with me about your work today. I really appreciate you being here, Paige. Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Look-See podcast. If you're curious to learn more about the art and artists you hear about on the podcast, go to our website, lookthensee.com. There you'll find much more to listen to, watch, read, and do. You'll find images of artists' work, peeks into artists' studios, thoughts on the work of making art, and details about where you can see art in and around Richmond. So check us out. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening.